0: We asked Brandon to come in and and talk here. When's the last time you spoke to him? I don't know. It was back during the pandemic probably. It's been a minute. So Um, there's not a a more godly, more committed guy uh, on the planet. He's a a great friend to a lot of people. He's a leader to um, an amazing ministry. And uh, his words this morning will be on point and full of the Mm -hmm. Spirit. And there's an opportunity for us to learn and grow. So I just encourage you uh, to really listen. Uh, let the Spirit move in your heart, in your mind, um, to draw you closer to Christ and make you more like Him. Uh, let me say a prayer for Brandon. Thank uh, God, thank you for this man, for his uh, life's work in the kingdom. I pray a blessing on him this morning that that he would uh, speak your words full of the Spirit. I pray for us as the listeners that uh, the Spirit would move powerfully in us to uh, receive this message in a way that uh, draws us closer to you and makes us more like Jesus. Uh, We lift this time up to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
1: All right. Yeah, I definitely know a lot of people here, um, but if you don't know me, um, I have been a missionary to University of Texas at Dallas for over 20 years at this point. And so a lot of familiar faces, a lot of people that have uh, been a part of that ministry there or a part of focus at Collin or somewhere, Denton, different places. So, uh, it's great to to see a lot of you, and, and I'm really thankful for this church because, uh, yeah, it's been one of the churches that has long supported that mission of reaching college and university students, and um, yeah, it's just been a, a tremendous blessing, and I always love getting to be here. It has, it, yeah, it kind of shocked me how long it had been when I started trying to remember and couldn't remember the last time I got to be with you guys on a Sunday morning. So they asked me to speak about... How Jesus interacted with people, and so I wanted to to begin just by describing a group of people that I think we're we're probably all very familiar with, um hardworking, you know, middle class, not the richest people, not the poorest people, but also not the people in you know real positions of power. But these are people serious about God, serious about trying to live God's way, you know, many of them nice people, they don't cheat others, and they have a a heart to see society reformed to look more like God wants. Does anyone know any of these people? You think so? Okay, okay. Actually, you don't, because I'm talking about the Pharisees in first century Judea. They were hardworking. They were the middle class. They weren't the people in positions of power. But they were serious about God, and they were a a reform party wanting to see the culture reformed to look more like God wanted it to look. And many of them were nice. They didn't cheat people. They were people who look and sound a lot like us. And there was another group at the same time that Jesus had interactions with. And these were people who were wealthy, but it was at the expense of other people. Not because they worked hard to get where they were, but because they were able through means of government to get what other people had worked hard for. These were the 1%, or the people who would walk on anyone to get to be a part of the 1%. And they're generally kind of without morals, without pity for others. And in an occupied territory that was under Roman domination, the greedy emperor needed local help to get what he wanted. And so he hired these tax collectors. They were the agents of economic oppression, and they were increasers of that oppression. They would contract with the government. They would bid to be, you know, here's how much tax money I'll give you to get the right to tax the people. And the government would go with the highest bidder, but then they just bid a flat amount. And whatever they could take from the people above that went to themselves. So the more they took, the more they got to keep. So these are the tax collectors, but they're not all that much like our tax collectors today. I don't know very many people who are fired up about paying taxes, but we realize that to some degree they're necessary. We want roads and things like that, and we certainly don't tend to blame our IRS agents and hate them. I go to church with a good friend who's an IRS agent. And, you know, while he may get a little bit of flack for it, especially this time of year, I don't know anyone who considers him a traitor to God and country. So we don't probably know anyone personally much like these tax collectors. We may read about them in the news we may get frustrated at how our how rich our government officials are getting when they give all the good stuff to the highest bidder, which isn't typically us, when they give the best things to rich and powerful interests rather than common Americans. But even that doesn't really get at this. It's like, imagine those sort of uh, sleazy government officials that are sort of, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, that we read about, we're frustrated with, and then add in that maybe they're feeding key information to terrorists bent on destroying and killing Americans. And maybe we can start to get close, if you combine those two things, to seeing how people felt about the tax collectors in Jesus' time. These were traitors And they they were people who took directly out of their pockets. So we've got our two groups in mind, right? Our hardworking, middle class, want things to go God's way Pharisees. And then these tax collectors. And it's in that context that Jesus says this. We're going to be in Luke 18, starting in verse 9, if you want to follow along. It says, to some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other one, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, as we hear these words, we have to be careful about the sneaky temptation that we have to associate ourselves with the hero of every story that we read. I know I read a a little parable uh kind of thing a few years ago and and it it was really a sweet story of kind of you know imagining what it was it like if you were at the the last supper and, and, but it was all in you language. You know, you're sitting there, you're watching, what were the things that you observed, the things that you thought, the things that you felt as Jesus went through the motions of, of this whole meal and speaks to you and says, this is my body broken for you. And I was, you know, very touching. And then at the very end, it just says, but you were uncomfortable thinking about the silver jingling in your pocket. And it's like oh oh i'm judas in this i've never i don't I don't ever think about being Judas in any of these stories. He's the bad guy i'm i'm I mean, I might be Peter. I might say something wrong, but I'm not going to you know ever betray anyone. But see, the danger is that we hear this parable and we talk about it and we think about it, and at the end, I lead us in prayer, and I say, God, i thank you that we are not like those Pharisees' right? And we don't go home justified (laughs) when we do that. We've definitely missed the point. When we read the scripture, there's only one hero. And while he is here today, he's not one of us. So how did Jesus interact with upright, hardworking, middle-class, religious people? Well, it changed over the course of his ministry. If you read the early stories, you find that early on he tried to reason with them. I think about uh, in in the beginning of Mark when Jesus is teaching in a house and, and people have crowded around because he's doing miracles. No one can get through the door. And so these guys get up on the roof of the house and they lower their friend, threw a hole in the roof. And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. And this sort of angers the Pharisees. Oh, he's blaspheming, he's blaspheming. You know, no one can say that. And he says, listen, just so you know that I have authority to do that, I'll heal him too. You know, because here's, here's the moment. It's like, can someone who's blaspheming God, is God going to do miracles through someone in the moment that they're blaspheming him. And so he heals that guy. It's a chance. It's a chance for these people to rethink what they thought they knew. But instead, they go out and they start conspiring on how they can get rid of him. But early on, he tries to reason with them. He wants to get through to them. Midway through his ministry, he begins more antagonizing them, I would call it. You know, there's this dispute over uh, the, the rules around the Sabbath and whether he should be healing on the Sabbath. And so early on, they kind of hear that he's healed on the Sabbath and are discussing, but he gets more and more frustrated. And so he would get them together in synagogue on the Sabbath, and he would come up, and he would find some person who, you know, was bent or had a withered hand or different things. And he would say, come up here in front of everyone. I'm going to make it real clear what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. Midway through, he began antagonizing them, making them angry. But again, here, the the, the heart of it is to get through to them, to make them think. And sometimes that works. I remember um, Mark Royal, who you know used to be an elder here, sharing about one of the, the formative experiences of his spiritual life was, uh, when uh, Ronnie Worsham came in and was teaching the class at their church, their Bible class, and got on to the class about being late and not taking it seriously, and uh, you know, and, and Mark and Sini at the time had no kids, they, you know, and yet they're coming in after all the people that were able to get multiple children to to church, dressed and ready, and basically Ronnie just pissed him off, you know, and he said, and nah, I was so mad, and I just would. I would just, you know, I was like I'm going to I'm going to watch him. I'm going to figure out what's wrong with him so that I know I can dis, you know, discount what he's said. And he's like, "But I watched and saw no, I saw a consistency in his life, and it was the anger that was able to get him to think and break out of those lazy, destructive, self-righteous habits." And that's I think what Jesus is trying to do here. He's like, "Watch. Look, Watch what I'm doing. Get to the point that you can get excited about a healing instead of about a rule. And then later on in his ministry, towards the very end, when even that didn't work, we have to remember that it wasn't like the, the Pharisees are just one block of people and none of them listened to Jesus. We see as we get into the book of Acts that there were Pharisees that became Christians. There were people who followed. At, at each step of this, probably, we see people are getting on board. They're hearing the message. They're repenting. But, but the gospel writers sort of tell us about them as a block, and they tell us about the ones who stayed uh, unrepentant. So, at the end, when even that sort of antagonizing, getting them angry didn't work, Jesus told them what he really thought, and quite openly, in front of a lot of other people. He warned other people about it. And this is, you know, passages like Matthew 23, where he gets up in the temple and he says, Listen, the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, and so you need to do what they tell you to do. But don't be like them. They're whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. You think you're walking on something clean, but underneath the surface, there's nothing clean there. He told them what he really thought. He exposed how very shallow and self-centered their goodness really was. But Jesus did all of this because he loved them. Because he wanted to show them that no amount of that kind of goodness is going to get them anywhere with God. No matter how much of it they can accumulate. Because it's a goodness that's not rooted in God, but in self. It's not a goodness of love. It's not a goodness that's looking for God's mercy for myself or for others. I don't need God's mercy. And you don't deserve it. It's not a goodness of trust in God. It's it's a goodness of morality that's smug and patronizing, that looks down on others. It has no compassion or mercy. It has no hope for others. The only hope is for people like me. This kind of goodness lacks not only love for God, but love for neighbor it won't lay down its own rights to lift another person up. You know, I hear so much of this even in our political discourse today. We're so, in our country, we're so concerned with our rights. We're even concerned about what's good and right. But we're not very concerned sometimes with mercy and compassion or anything that looks like Jesus on the cross. You know, I, I think about what Paul says in in First Corinthians 11, where he's we we quote from it all the time when we do the Lord's Supper. But I think we miss sometimes the the deeper context of that passage, where you know apparently the church is coming together and they're all bringing their own food, and when they're doing the Lord's Supper, some people eat a lot, but then there's poor people and they don't have anything. And so I am over here just getting full and drunk and. You know, and so and so's over here just sitting they don't have anything. And you know, and Paul who's he's been talking this whole letter about about Jesus on the cross. What what is the Lord all about? What's he doing? And he says he says then when you come together, it's not the Lord's supper you're eating. It's your own private supper. In other words, he's like, don't put Jesus' name on that crap. You know, that's it has nothing to do with him. When you get together and it's selfish and it's all about you and what you have the right to do, he's like, I, you can do that. He's like, but do it at home. Don't don't put Jesus' name on that thing. And I think it can be like that with us that we've got the you know, this religious right, or we've got all of the things that we care about. And I think Paul would say like, that's not the Lord's deal. That's not what he was like. He wasn't going around demanding his rights. See, this kind of goodness is goodness that's fashioned into a weapon rather than em- an embrace. It's goodness that's accumulated for personal gain rather than for distributing generously to those who need it. And we're probably all guilty of this at times. I know I am. Is any of us in this room so godly that we are immune to these temptations? You want to raise your (laughs) hands? That we've never thought we were better than others for any reason? Look down on them? You know, if you think you're immune, this message is especially for you. See, in Jesus' story, the tax collector's goodness, on the other hand, doesn't have much going for it. It's just a goodness of trusting God. We can hope that it leads to real change. But for today, in the story, Jesus said it was enough. Doesn't tell us anything about that guy going home and living a changed life. We don't get all the details of the Zacchaeus story where he's paying back what he stole. He just said, have mercy on me. I don't have anything going for me. And Jesus said he went home justified. It's grace before repentance, in a way. And that's what really ticked the Pharisees off about Jesus. He wasn't taking goodness and rightness seriously enough. So how can we be like Jesus in the way that we interact with such people? With those who are, as Luke says, confident in their own righteousness and look down on others which is me sometimes, and you? How do we interact with our nice, middle-class, hard-working, good people, Christian friends if we want to act like Jesus? I would say to put it simply, we need to prioritize truth and real love over comfort. We need to find ways to let God's light really shine on us. But if we've been sitting in the dark that light feels really harsh at first. feels really bright. Church should not be a safe space where our current thoughts get coddled and never challenged. It needs to be a place that's full of the security of love, that I'm safe and I'm secure because this is a place that I'm loved without condition. But that's about all that's safe. My ideas, my lifestyle, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, my attitudes, the ways that I'm used to talking to and treating my friends, my spouse, my kids, my parents, my boss, my coworkers, even what I think about myself, none of that should be safe here. One of the things that Ronnie told us from the very beginning about building churches and ministries was to never let the Pharisees get comfortable. But sometimes the Pharisees are us, so we need to make sure that we don't get too comfortable. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. So let's be like the tax collector. It's when we see how bankrupt we are that we can turn to God in absolute trust. And when we've trusted him that way, and we see how he responds in grace and compassion that we'll be more than ready to point other spiritually bankrupt people to him. So they asked me for a reflection question, and the the question that I wanted us to reflect on is just, how are we tempted to prioritize comfort over truth when we're relating to good people? So I'll pray for us. God, um, I just thank you for this story that uh, you told so long ago, and our older brothers and sisters in the faith have just carefully preserved and recorded and passed down so that we wouldn't lose these words from Jesus. And I pray that we could hear them today uh, and that that we could have the same experience of being uh, of their bite, but also of their message of grace. to us, just that, like, the, the original hearers heard. In Jesus' name. Amen.